By May 1963, the Beatles were making a powerful impact in Britain and already had 17 radio broadcasts under their belts. The BBC hierarchy were not slow in recognising the group's potential and offered them the rare opportunity to host their very own radio series. This week's one there was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, we're back with part two of our look at Lord Reese version of the uh, BBC tapes. It was released last year. It's the currently most up to date and most complete, although there are still some things missing. I just feel like they're bound to come along someday, right? It's amazing how much we've gotten in the last 20 years. He uh, includes an annotated PDF of, oh, this was when this was recovered, and this was when that was recovered. And it's like, Half of this stuff has come back to us in the last 15, 20 years. So, you know, there's, there's bound to be more out there. That's the cause of my optimism. <laughs> One of the clips that uh, is on here is the audio of the Beatles' second national TV appearance in Britain. And it's the Beatles playing for me to you on Pops and Lenny, a kid's uh, Punch and Judy show. I'm glad we have the audio, but the audio is not complete. And what I wouldn't give to have the video of John Lennon hanging around with a stuffed lion and a, a, a bit of Punch and Judy characters. Right. Well, it, it would fit so well with the Around the Beatles footage. You know. We left off just before the Please Please Me album was released. So the album is getting ready to come out. And the Beatles appear on what... While it's not a very momentous performance, it's a show that turns out to be pretty momentous for them personally. Yeah, they, they meet a lot of people who uh, will have a big effect on their lives. You know, the Rolling Stones, uh, who they had just met days before, basically. The first time we saw the Stones, we were doing a TV show uh, called Thank Your Lucky Stars, which is really good if you're trying to sell records at that time. It's the biggest sort of pop show in England. And we had a press guy called Andrew Oldham, who also was, in a way, managing the Stones. And we did the show in Birmingham, which is 200 miles from London. And we got in the car after the show, and we drove to London, and he said, why don't you come and see this band? And they were playing in some pub. So we went over, and uh, we really enjoyed it, and we all said hello. And from then on, we sort of kept saying hello. And so the Rolling Stones showed up. And then shortly thereafter, George would recommend them for a record deal. And, well, that's how the Stones got their record contract. 
Right. I think George was at a party, as I remember it, and uh, a man from Decca there was saying, you know, uh, do you know any groups? They were always asking us that, because we'd been successful, and they figured, well, you know, if you like them, maybe we can pick them up. So they're always asking that A&R people. Heard of any good acts? And George said, yeah, there's this group we've seen down at the uh, Station Hotel in Richmond. It's really good, called the Rolling Stones. So the, the first track on here, as Lord Reith has shown to us from part one, is just a little bit of, you know, here's what the BBC was like in 1963. Here's what's on the light program coming up. Why not join the Cliff Adams group and sing something simple at six o'clock? Jack Watson turns on the London lights at 6.30, and top of the bill this week, Terry Scott and Mrs. Shufflewick. You'll also be hearing some of the music from Pal Joey. Nine o'clock on a Sunday means a further selection by Alan Keith from your 100 best tunes. And tonight, who knows, your choice might well be in the programme. Gershwin, Mozart, Handel. They've each written one of your 100 best tunes, nine o'clock in the light. Not the Beatles in any way, shape, or form just yet. Yeah. You can see kind of where the BBC was at that point, and the Beatles are going to come and change that dramatically. And even just in what we get on this disc, it took them 14 months to get what is basically one disc's worth of material. Here in two and a half, three months, they record everything that's going to show up on this second disc. Right. I do think they kind of worked out what was coming so that's a good song for the album well for sure and and they even uh, work on the material that's going to be on with the beatles during these radio shows right so while that was going on the beatles had finished the helen shapiro tour and they were on their own tour right by the end of this disc they will have started on the uh, roy orbison tour one of our first big tours was sinking on the bill to roy orbison and uh it was pretty hard to keep up with that man. He really put on a show, you know. Well, they all did, but uh, Orbison had that fantastic voice. We're opening for Roy. No, Roy's opening for us. <laughs> right. And, you know, the radio show they did, The Swinging Sounds of 63, had Kenny Lynch, who recorded... Misery. They were working it. So, yeah, this is the first show. It's Swinging Sounds of 63. It was aired live on the 18th of April, 1963. They actually did an afternoon set, but that set didn't get recorded. Or it's in the 2030 material. <laughs> it wasn't aired on the BBC, so if we're going to get it, it's going to be something that someone swept up and took home. Right. And so among the other acts that were on this show, so the, you know the Beatles did a handful of songs in the first set and a handful of songs in the second set, but... As the title implies, it was the swinging sound of 63. I guess the second biggest act would be Del Shannon. Right. Who had a definite hit at that point. Uh, yeah, um, Runaway. And of course, Del runaway. Shannon would eventually be at least considered for uh, replacing Roy and the Wilburys. Right. But more importantly to this story, well, the Beatles would play For Me to You. And at least as far as legend goes... You know, Dell went up to John Lennon and said, I like that song. I want to do a cover version. Then supposedly John turned to him and said, yeah, yeah, okay, you can do that. Then he thought about it for a minute and it's like, well, no, wait a minute. Don't. Don't do that. <laughs> and Dell didn't listen to him. Right. I think later on, McCartney mentioned that there is a, a chord transition. An A chord, I believe. Or A minor or something that they used in For Me to You. 
which he'd kind of borrowed from Runaway. Right. It does all come full circle, just like it eventually would with James Taylor. <laughs> right. You know, I feel fine at the end of something in the way she moves. So, right. That's one act that was there. The other acts included Kenny Lynch, as you mentioned, the Springfields, Rolf Harris, and the MC who we do actually get to hear introducing the Beatles was a jazz musician named George Melly. Yes, definitely known to John. Yeah, apparently John had quite a discussion with George Melly about the cavern. George Melly and his band had played in the cavern in late 59, early 1960. And John was still upset about the fact that, well, they didn't want these skifflers in there mingling amongst the jazz musicians, the, the serious jazz musicians coming down and playing in the cellar. But, you know, by the time we're talking, 1963, the revolution had occurred. The cavern was uh, a rock and roll club they'd won. And then George Melly just sounds so out of place. Hi! It's them, uh, them lads from the pool with them fat out there, but ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! <laughs> that was the deal for a year. It was the haircuts. That was the thing that everybody talked about. And we really seem to think of that as more of an American thing because, well, the American media did take up on that as the thing to talk about. But at this point in 63, the haircuts really weren't that big a deal. They weren't that long yet. This is true. And, and you could look at, particular on some of those package tours, and so you see a photograph of everybody who's on the tour, and it was changing I mean, there are some who are kind of adopting a longer hairstyle, but it was right in that change. You know, there were some that didn't and maybe never would. <laughs> Pete Best, anybody? Right. He did eventually adopt a mop top when <laughs> some American record guy said, you got to look like those other guys. <laughs> yeah. We, we want to sell you as a former Beatle. We got to make you look like one of them. Money changes everything. <laughs> yeah, and I noticed, you know, Rolf Harris being on this list and talking about a small community. Uh, he was produced by George Martin. There's someone who uh, has been me tooed out of existence. <laughs> he, he probably deserves it more than Harvey Weinstein deserved it. The man who we thought we knew on TV was not the man who he was. I just remember that song, My Boomerang Won't Come Back. Well, and Timey Kangaroo Downsport. I mean, yes. He was, in fact, a person who had a dark side, the dark side that was revealed in court. At his trial, the full story of the abuse carried out by the television star was laid bare. He would cross the Beatles' paths in The Christmas Show, one of these future radio shows we're going to talk about somewhere down the line here. It was just a small showbiz community in, in Britain. You'd run across everybody at some point. So in the first set, they did Please Please Me in Misery. And like you said, that wasn't taped. Right. And then they closed the show. It's one of those, everybody comes out on stage, and apparently they all did Mac the Knife. And there's no tape of that. Was a stage band playing it, or did everybody kind of jam it? I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how it all went down. With people like Kenny Lynch and George Melly and Rolf Harris, too, for that matter, I would expect there was probably an orchestra. Right or something on there. They may have been strumming along, but it's largely just get up and sing a little bit. Yeah. Although like, throughout this show, you get Beatles singing 
songs you wouldn't expect. <laughs> this is true. In the evening show, the Beatles would perform uh, Twist and Shout, an abridged version of Twist and Shout, and their single at the time, For Me to You. Which was not very old. I mean, it had just been recorded. For Me to You is the song that we will hear the most on this disc. We get, we get four versions of that. And then it would be followed by uh, Boys, where we get three versions of Boys. I guess largely because they really didn't have anything else for Ringo to sing at that point. Yeah, he's always just kind of did one song with the Beatles. He didn't have a I mean, Ringo Star time with them. And so Boys was his number. Uh, overall, this series of shows we hear it three times. Although, much like with Sar standing there, George plays pretty different solos in each version. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that as, as we get to the versions here. <laughs> and then the other important thing, Beatle-wise... This was the evening when Paul would meet Jane Asher. Yeah, and and I would say that's probably one of the most important things that happened this evening because certainly on a personal note for Paul, there's Jane, the fact that he would eventually end up living in the Asher home, that he would write a bunch of songs about her. I mean, this was an important date. Yeah, Jane had been hired to be uh, the resident teenager Reacting to all the bands that were on the stage. Yeah, it was photographs. And I think she wrote something too, didn't she? I think she did. Yeah, but there's photos of her before she knew Paul just screaming at them. (laughs) Right. Here here on this afternoon or this evening. Right. And didn't they end up hanging out with the Stones that night? Yeah. So to finish the Jane Asher story, as the story goes, you know, she got invited backstage and apparently uh, George was hitting on her. And then Paul said, shove off. Right. And Paul took over and well, that was the end of that for the next uh, five years. Yeah. As far as the Stones... As you mentioned, they really just met the Stones a few days before down at the Crawdaddy. Clearly hit it off. Brian Jones uh, went along with Mal and Neil and helped them uh, load up after the show, you know, as one is wont to do. They were just band guys helping each other out. But the unknown Brian Jones had relatively long hair. Right. The girls looked up. I guess they might recognize Mal. Mal would be kind of hard to miss. Like I said, this was the the transition. So there were few enough people with long hair that if you saw someone with long hair, particularly around the Beatles, you might think, hey, that's one of the Beatles because not very many people had long hair. So he got mobbed by the girls. And apparently enjoyed it. <laughs> As the story goes, Mal and the police had to intervene, and Brian's being dragged away, and he's muttering, yeah, I like this. I want some more of this. Right. Understandable. Well, it reminds me of the John Lennon story. You know, you went to see those movies with Elvis or somebody in it when, when we were still in Liverpool, and you'd see everybody waiting to see him, right? And I'd be waiting there, too. And they'd all scream when he came on the screen. Right? So we thought, that's a good job. Yeah. Before that evening, the Beatles uh, appeared on Side by Side, a regular radio show at that time. Right. It was actually recorded on April Fool's Day of 63. Yes. And then they recorded another one just a few days later, I think. Exactly. So the house band was the Carl Denver Trio. I guess they were sort of the British equivalent of uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary unquestionably the most popular folk singer in all of Europe, Mr. Carl Denver. 
the way the side by side worked apparently was whoever they bought in would alternate with the Carl Denver trio singing songs throughout the half hour. All that exists of the first side by side is them and the Carl Denver trio uh, singing the theme song, and that's not even complete. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, the Beatles. And then we get a little bit of uh, chat. Do you think that this um, second Nashville tag is justified? Well, it depends what you mean by Nashville, but... Well, rhythm and blues, then. There are lots of groups in, in Liverpool singing rhythm and blues now. It's a, a Liverpool kind of rhythm and blues. It's not the genuine thing. Uh-huh. But there are many, many clubs, presumably, in which these people can play. Oh, thousands of them. Well, 25. Have you any, any idea how many groups there are in Liverpool? There's approximately 300. All earning a living? All earning a living, but 50 that are earning a good living. Professionals? Professionals, yes. Where did you get your affinity for this music? Was it in America? Was it from American recordings? Or was it from British? Well, I haven't been to America, you know. It's just from the records we've heard. Uh-huh. The early, especially the early American uh, blues-type records, you know. Yeah, of such as... Uh, Richard, uh-huh. uh, Carl Perkins, just Perry. Carl Perkins, the name of the Western. Well, that's Found a fine it. definition, but let's yeah. get on with the music now. What's the next number going to be? The next one is one that Paul and I wrote from our LP... It's called Do You Want to Know a Secret? And I bet you do. Thanks, John. Uh, you know, I think so few British acts had gone to America at that point. It's an interesting question. No, they haven't been to America. Who has? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, even Cliff hadn't really been to America at that point. Yeah. Who would have been the biggest British star in the circles. Right. And so the, the next bit of chat. But why Hamburg? This seems a strange way to start for a British group. We got a gig. We got someone who booked us there, so of course we're we're gonna go off. Yeah. So he thinks they might have been to America, but he doesn't understand why they just traveled across the sea there and went to Hamburg. Well, well that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> On this April first show, they did primarily, you know, copy material: "Long Tall Sally," "Taste of Honey," "Chains." That's the one which still exists. I see. Uh, the, the one that doesn't exist, uh, they did uh, Saw Her Standing There, Do You Want to Know a Secret, which is what we hear the intro to, Baby It's You, Please Please Me, For Me to You in Misery. So that, that was a, a fair mix between the two. Right. And so that was aired on the, the 22nd of April. Yeah. So, you know, we're really only talking about four days after they had just been part of this big swinging Stars of 63 show. Right. And as you mentioned, they also recorded a second side-by-side on April Fool's Day, which would be aired on the 13th of May. Right. And so that largely consisted of cover tunes, Long Tall Sally, Taste of Honey, Chains, and Boys, which is incomplete. Uh, And then the only original being Thank You, Girl. Right. I'm always tickled when I see the b-sides show up you know that you really don't see more than once basically you know thank you girl uh, i'll get you that sort of thing they show up very rarely yeah but they play them i mean you know they knew they were appearing much more frequently on the bbc so they wanted to kind of start to diversify a little bit right And, and the chat on on these two shows is it's interesting it's a little bit weird uh, then, then we get John uh, doing a little bit of his of his goon voice 
as he tells some of the flaming pie story. Well, a cane in a vision <laughs> and a flaming pie. You are Beatles with an A. So it came to pass. Uh. <laughs> I'll buy that one. It sounds like Donald Duck to me, actually. <laughs> Could have been Donald Duck. John knew Donald Duck at that point. The Disney cartoons would have been in front of those westerns and war movies that they went to see during those long afternoons between cavern sets. For sure. And Paul tells us that... Well, it's a lovely tune. Great favorite of my Auntie Jen's, A Taste of Honey. The first time we hear about Auntie Jen. Right. Paul introduces us to his family. have now decided well we're not going to introduce john as the leader so so he asks questions about you know who does the arranging who does the writing and most of the songs that you sing are original compositions which of you composes the song that's me that's what i call togetherness <laughs> right and then before boys we get ringo sing well actually they did give me a go on the lp and between you and me i think that's the track that's selling it <laughs> and it's a number called boys <laughs> So in a way, they're getting funnier. They're getting the time to talk. And the confidence to do it. Well, you listen to their performances. The first disc that we got here, you know, everything was a little bit fast. The tempo was amped up by their adrenaline. Here, they've calmed down. They're getting used to it. It's like, okay, we know how to do this. The songs more closely match what they actually do in the studio. And they get closer and closer and... I just think they're getting used to a studio, too, because they're in the BBC studios cutting all this. Uh, we get a clip from Paul at the end here where he says that they look for the engineers who, even though they might not necessarily have been rock and roll fans, they knew how to put their sound down on tape. That was why he feels the, the BBC stuff was so important. That was good. They had, they had a couple of good engineers here. I, I think that's the secret. So three days later on the, the 4th of April... I guess they liked him so much in the two shows they did the on the 1st of April. They were back yet again. So this is the third consecutive show, I guess, where the Beatles were the guests of the Carl Denver Trio on Side by Side. Right. But they were getting these things done in groups so they could be broadcast later. They couldn't just keep coming back to London to record these things. This was broadcast. Yeah, this would not be broadcast until the end of June. Right. So we get the full version of, of the side-by-side theme. It fascinates me that they re-recorded that every time. You know, you would <laughs> think they would just pull the tape. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, you could hear differences, so, I mean. The British Musicians Union had real interesting rules, and that could have been a factor in all that, that you'd have to record a new version, a live version, so to speak, every time. I don't know. I'll have to look into that. I would guess it was probably just as easy, and then... The other thing is, well, they hadn't had much of a sound check. I mean, George tells us that the way those sessions went, they would just roll in, get everything set up, and start playing. They're lucky if they just do a run-through of each song once that they're going to play. Everything was done instantly. I mean, we probably had like a quick setup of the amplifiers and the drums. 
plugged in, ran through them like once, I would say, while the the engineer got a rough balance, and then we did them. But before that, we we used to drive like 200 miles in an old van down the M1, come into London, try and find the BBC, and then set up and do the programme, and then probably drive back to Newcastle for a gig in the evening. If you ever have a chance to look through uh, one of the diaries that Epstein would put together for them, you know, this is where you need to be, this is what you have to do. They were busy people. Radio shows, going to a concert, the travel time, the fact that they wanted to go home to Liverpool often. Yeah, this was before they would move to London. It would be several months before they would actually move down to London. Right. They were busy people. Oh, absolutely. That's going to be one of the highlights of the Mal diaries when we finally get a hold of them. Because, I mean, Mal was there with them every step of the way. Yeah. And he was writing this stuff down. Right. We get some introductions saying... That and here are those four Beatles up to some no-good monkey business. Ha ha ha. There's your segue. And we get a really hot version of Too Much Monkey Business. Yeah. And I, I like this... I like the song and I like the version. Yeah, me too. Always been a favorite when I first heard it. It was like, oh man, that would have been something really good to put on an album. John doing Chuck Berry, just spitting out those lyrics. That's what that song is. Of course, all of Chuck Berry's songs are about the lyrics, but this one in particular, it's kind of like no particular place to go. It's all about the rhythm of the lyrics. Yeah. A relative of mine had you know, some sort of poll on online about who are the greatest rock lyricists and you know people named dylan and all that and you know i'm reading through the list and at the end i'm like dudes what about chuck berry he was brilliant as a lyricist right in the middle of the 50s when a lot of the songs were about puppy love yeah no chuck berry did not care if the acceptable white musicians could spit out his lyrics it's like nope i'm doing them (laughs) And I'm writing about what I want to write about. Yeah. But he was he was brilliant. And and so this show we actually get the feel of the alternating songs, Beatles and Carl Denver Trio and Beatles and Carl Denver Trio. Too much monkey business is followed by a song we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago. Yader Witty. <laughs> I guess that's actual German. I mean some of it is. It kind of sounds like mock German. In places as well. Of course, you know, there's there's the obvious uh, references to uh, to sex and, uh, well, male genitalia. On the BBC? Oh, my gosh. Horrors. Horrors. Ni- 1963? Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, especially since, uh, you know, as, as the story goes, the Germans would be... Oh, they're talking about wheelies on a show with beetles on them. <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> that's the joke. I mean, that's right. why they were the Beat Brothers on the Tony Sheridan records. Yeah, you, Beatles was too much. They're Beatles. Yeah, exactly. Just too close. Yeah, but, but it's interesting. It a German song sung by a Scotchman, and they had released that as a single, like in '62. Wow. I went looking around on YouTube, and it's like, why did they think this was a good idea, and why did people buy it? It's not a bad tune, now. But 
it very much sounds like Oktoberfest, or or at least the stereotypical Oktoberfest. Right. Something you might expect to hear in a beer hall. Although the Carl Denver Trio could play, they could play their instruments. So that was their main calling? Well, I mean, they were a professional group and they made their living as a singing group. Right. It's interesting to me how diverse their tracks were. We also talked about Zub, which is the next song they do. You know, they they kind of say, well, this was... This is a number from the Basin of the Amazon. It's a a worshipper's song. Many years before Band on the Run or Graceland. (laughs) Right. It might not appeal to everyone, but I'm sure the the rhythm of this thing and uh, the calls and the sounds should uh, stir a wee bit of uh, something up somewhere. It may all just be a big send-up, a big joke, but it, they seem earnest. <laughs> They're believable. We'll give them that. They're believable. <laughs> Yather Willie is followed by Love Me Do, <laughs> which is then followed by the song Zub. Right. An amazing show thus far. And then uh, the introduction is... We've uh, come to plug Ringo. Jolly good. Oh, we are going to drum it. That'll do for me. (laughs) Yes, Stringer's going to give us uh, his uh, one and only song. Jolly good. The Boys. (laughs) That's not the announcer. That that sounds like the Carl Denver Trio saying that. It's none of the Beatles saying that. (laughs) You know, when you look at this particular show, you know, they do Too Much Monkey Business, Love Me Do, Boys. Again, the guitar solo is very different. This is a little bit more rocking. I think the first one uh, that we heard was almost a, a little bit more countrified, a little bit more Chad Atkins. Yeah. It's not really meant as a criticism, but, you know, he does play different things all the time. You know, a lot of times the lead to I saw her standing there is radically different. There's a great piece of videotape of them. I think it's Blackpool Night Out. Well, even in the studio, when George does a particularly bad solo on Sorry Standing There, you know, it's John or it's Paul. Well, what what kind of solo was that? <laughs> that yeah. Uh, on this videotape, they're live, of course, or they're being recorded, so they, they're not going to say anything. But John k- gives a look like, oh, my God, what was that? <laughs> you know, because the, the lead just kind of doesn't go anywhere. So they move on. But I, I would say that for the most part, there weren't really worked out leads for George to play or that George does play because they get changed around. Well, it's kind of ironic when you consider what George says in get back is that he was not a spontaneous kind of player that he had to work out everything. It's like, well, here you are every show. You're doing something just a little bit different. (laughs) You haven't worked it out yet. Exactly. And then even when they record the record, he still wants to change it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think the first uh, lead that he kind of really pinned down was Hard Day's Night because it was so distinctive uh, that you just had to play. But the rest of them. Well, All My Love, and he never changed that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. George could play the same lead twice, but he, he just preferred not to. Yeah. No, it's not a matter of whether he could play it or not, as long as he gets all the notes in right. Boys is followed by an unimpressive song from the Carl Denver Trio, When Day is Done. I've got nothing to say about that. <laughs> it's done. And then a couple of originals, which we won't spoil it just yet here. Right. We're coming up but, to it. So move on. We hear that George Harrison has uh, the cold or uh, a flu or he isn't well. Wouldn't be the first or last. It is George the Dark Horse. Yeah. Yes. And and he tries to sing for me to you. And it's like, if there's anything that you want, <laughs> if there's anything I can do. Oh, we shouldn't laugh, George. It's awfully rough. <laughs> I think I should just so add that the program that you're listening to has been recorded. And we're actually talking to you from a few weeks ago. So if you were by any chance thinking of seeing the Beatles in action, perhaps tonight, there George will be large as life and twice as beautiful. Right. Yeah, I, 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 on with the music. He was one of those guys who would get sick now and again because he was sick in New York City just as well. Yep. You know. So let's see. This was recorded on the fourth of April. I mean, he was fine on on the first of April. So he must have gotten sick between those couple of days there. Right. And this is just a silly little piece of trivia. But just a month earlier, they had recorded for me to you. And um, thank you, girl. And John was sick. For the whole Please Please Me album, John was not well. You can hear the congestion in his voice. And, you know, it's, it's a wonder he made it through Twist and Shout. Right. Four guys in the van. It doesn't need to be COVID for upper respiratory infections, especially in the, well, I guess we're not in the middle of winter. We're in the middle of summer, but, you know, British summer, it might as well be winter. Well, and also the fact that their schedule has them working regardless of whether they're well or not. You know, you just kind of plow on. Well, and I mean, you know, he's he's here. He's not singing, but he, he is playing all of his parts. Right. And he does make the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> you know, yep. I mean, and John, even though he was sick in March, recorded for me to you. Okay. So now, so now the big reveal. Well, this is one of the songs which really makes all the bbc sets whether it's a good song or a great song it's one that they never otherwise recorded a version of i don't think we even have the demo of it do we Uh, not that i'm aware of Uh, and and my own personal view is you said we don't know if it's a good song or a great song i would dial it down back even more you know okay whether it's an adequate song or whether it's a good song right You know, I've always felt like the melody was a little sweet, kind of treacly. The title of the song is I'll Be On My Way. And, you know, it's regardless of the quality of the song, much like George Harrison's uh, You Know What To Do from Anthology, is valuable just because it is. Yeah. It's something that that we otherwise don't have from the Beatles. The one who recorded the song was, was Billy J. Kramer, and his single was, in fact, out at the time. Right. Well, the the difference for this is that uh, George's demo is George. This required the whole band to learn the song. So, yeah. you know, this is actually, they rehearsed it and put it together, and that's different. Although Ringo's not playing that hard on it. And you, you figure John, Paul, and George would have 
going strictly by the lyrics, this has to be one which had been around since Paul was 16. Right. And what are the lyrics, Ed? The most corny, the possibly worst bit of uh, songwriting, rhyming that everyone always talks about, it's Moon, June, and Spoon. Right. Well, Paul uses two of those here. Right. And even the sun is fading away, that's the end of the day. As the moonlight turns to June light, I'll be on my way. This is kind of an, uh, a proto uh, I'll follow the sun. I, I can very much see that they might have said, well, there's some interesting ideas in there and we'll, we'll turn that into something. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'll follow the sun. Was, it was still more a Paul song, but it was largely a collaboration. And if you go all the way back to its genesis, it's, you know, I'll follow the sun was a country song. In, in, yeah, we we hear it on the the 1960 tape, right? That they changed to kind of a folk style, but this they gave the song to Billy J. Billy J. did it as a Mersey beat thing. You know, you listen to it. The sun is fading away. It reminds me in a lot of ways of the arrangement of How Do You Do It. Fair. Billy Jay's arrangement doesn't help the song any. Yeah. I guess it was nice of the Beatles to play Billy Jay's new record while they're doing their radio show. Despite its limitations, their arrangement is just so miles beyond what Billy Jay did. Even Billy Jay with George Martin, they're helping him out in the studio. I wonder if any of the Beatles were there at Billy Jay's sessions because they tended to uh, to show up. Yeah. Yeah. But. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they were at that session or not, but you do hear John and Paul on some of the demos that are on that Billy J set. Right. They would show up whenever any of Brian's artists were in the studio, and they could be. This version, it's nice enough. It, it's obvious why the Beatles would never pick this up and attempt it themselves, but they do manage to come up with something which is nice enough. It's entertaining. Well, you know, one of the the strengths of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership was the fact that they would criticize the work. And there's the famous story of she was just 17, never was a beauty queen. And Lennon was like, oh, my God, no, and changed the line. Later on, he commented about this song and the june light moonlight aspect and he just didn't bother to change that. <laughs> I, think, I think he gave up on the song early if it had sort of morphed into i'll follow the sun then it's like okay we don't need that first one anymore <laughs> at this point they were th- still thinking us as performers is only going to last a couple years so we need to get as many of these songs out to as many of our people as we can to prove that we're professional songwriters right yeah, they were definitely plugging themselves as that. And, you know, Epstein was promoting the songwriting partnership. And We're actually not that far removed from... This is the story of the Mersey Sound. The TV show with the interview with Paul where he's saying exactly that. Yeah. That was being done right around this same time. He mentions I Want to Be Your Man in that interview. So, so that's about the time period we're talking about. Was that they had written it, but then they were going to give it to the Stones. Yeah, and they'd done that with Misery and Kenny Lynch. They were definitely promoting their work. 
as songwriters? Probably the thing that John and I will do uh, will be write songs as we have been doing as a sort of sideline now. We'll probably develop that a bit more, we hope. Then the show continues with If I Had My Way from the Carl Denver Trio. Uh, again, a nice enough song. It's uh, it's interesting in as much as you know, listening to these alternating song and listening to what they were putting the Beatles with. You don't get the feel when you just listen to the Beatles piece. It's like, really? You know, someone thought this was a good idea to put these two acts together? You know, it may not have been that there was any choice. It was side by side, the Carl Denver Trio show. Yeah. I mean, it was the Beatles wanting to be on the radio and the side by side producers wanting, you know, the hot new act to be on the show. So I don't think they're even a consideration of do these acts really mesh? It was both sides were self-serving. Paul makes an interesting comment in, in his interview uh, that comes at the end of the set is that, you know, listening back, everyone was just kind of doing what they had to. Right. You know, the announcers would have rather been actors. The, the producers would have rather been down at the jazz club and the Beatles would have rather been playing with somebody else other than the Carl Denver trio. If I had my way from the Carl Denver trio is followed by uh for me to you, and it right. closes out with the Weem Away, which was actually, that was their big hit. Was it? Yep. Weem Away. Which is not Lion Sleeps Tonight. Right. <laughs> and then it closes with the Carl Denver trio-only version of the side-by-side theme. Gotta get that in. So really the big thing from this is I'll be on my way. Well, yeah. that and monkey business. Yeah. So please, please me, the album... Top the charts on the 1st of May. And the legend begins. Just the day before, a BBC studio manager, Vernon Lawrence, suggested that the Beatles be given their own radio series. So right. that, that was then approved, and they said, well, we'll do four shows. So, okay, they believed in them, but they didn't know how much they believed in them. Well, they were you know, certainly the hot item right then. You know, Even though Please Please Me hadn't hit number one, in Britain, it hit number two, and it was still a big record. And then For Me to You was climbing the charts, and the album hit number one the very next day. It was still going up the charts. So it was a, a good call from the radio people. One of the other interview clips where they talk about coming up with the name, you, you got to love how discreet the British producers were. You know, he, he talks about his lady friend who actually named the show, and he's clearly talking about pillow talk <laughs> you know how did you come up with his name and it's like oh no no well she went home and she was talking to her younger sister who who is a pop fan and it's like oh, we get it right it i find that amusing <laughs> the title pop go the beatles is actually down to a lady who works for the bbc in some executive capacity her name is Frances Lyon. she was a uh, production secretary in uh, light program days and she and I had a, a very close relationship, very friendly relationship, and I was talking to her one day about it, and she was very keen. She took a lot of interest in programs like Saturday Club, Easy Beat, for whom she worked, actually, for Brian Matthew. And I was saying, I can't find a title for this. And she went home one night and came the next morning, she said, uh, we've been sitting around at home. She had a younger sister who was into music, you know, sort of pop music and such, and she said, we thought this wouldn't make a bad title, Pop Go the Beatles. And I said, you've got it. That is a super title. So it wasn't mine, you see. So, but I think it should be laid at her door. <laughs> She'll kill me for that. The 16th of May, we get 
a partial for me to you. That's the Pops and Lenny that we were talking about earlier. Right. There's a photo of, of the TV screen that I believe Mike McCarty took. And, you know, Paul is just laughing at, at these children's hosts and this rather rid- ridiculous looking lion puppet. <laughs> I just wish that it still existed, but. A different showbiz world. Although, you know, I think I've got several clips of artists in the 80s in Britain playing children's shows. Just for comparison's sake, the Beatles tour with Roy Orbison started on the 18th of May. So this is the period we're talking about. Their set list at the time consisted of some other guy. Do you want to know a secret? Love Me Do or Taste of Honey. I guess it was who won the fist fight between John and Paul that evening. <laughs> for me to you, please, please me, saw her standing there. And then again, closing with Twist and Shout or Long Tall Sally. Right. Interesting so, that those were interchangeable. And eventually yeah. they'd move Twist and Shout to the opener. But you can see that the songs that they were doing on the radio here were not only their album tracks, it's the songs that they were doing on stage. Right. As we get into the next volume, when they're doing a weekly show for 15 weeks, they can't keep doing the same songs every week. Well, they do, but they they have to do many more songs. Yeah. yeah. So next, they appear on uh, Saturday Club, the 21st of May, and it was aired uh, four days later. Right. Brian Matthew. That'll be a longstanding relationship. You know, we talk about the Beatles chat and their interaction with Brian Matthew. That's really pretty interesting. I'm Brian Matthew, the second oldest disc jockey in the world. (laughs) (laughs) We don't normally speak to each other, but over this project, we've met up from time to time and exchanged insults, which was the sort of thing one did with the Beatles when they were youngsters and far more sophisticated than we were, although we'd spent already quite long lives in radio. And I introduced a program which has been mentioned once or twice, called Saturday Club, on which they appeared more than they appeared on any other program. Um, I interviewed them more times than any other disc jockey. And this is... (laughs) this was So just running down the songs they played, much like that list we just had there, they did Saw Her Standing There, Do You Want to Know a Secret, Another Boys, uh, Long Tall Sally, For Me to You, and Money. Right. The song uh, to notice there is Money, because... You know, this is May, and with the Beatles, wouldn't be out until November. Right, but it was a, a, a favorite of theirs. I mean, it was on the DECA auditions, you know. Talk about two completely different worlds. You listen to John's vocal on the DECA version, and you listen to the version here. He's confident, and he is full-throated here, whereas on DECA, you know, he was just so tentative. Yeah, well, you know, they were playing all the time at this point, but not hours and hours a day and i think lennon's voice became that powerhouse during this time he's able to hit all of his vocals and his falsetto is perfect yeah i mean you can see they're developing toward what they would be in that washington show yeah that would kind of be the pinnacle of this performance style that we're talking about here Right. Brian Matthews seems particularly interested in this climb, and he has comments several times on how the Beatles' fame is growing more and more. It really is becoming a phenomenon right before everybody's eyes. He introduces them by reminding everyone that these are Bill Toppers. Then in the next introduction before Do You Want to Know a Secret, he says that uh, 
they've been getting as many requests for the Beatles as for everyone else combined. Yep. That is pretty cool. Before Long Tall Sally, he reads a postcard. Their fame, it seems, is now spread to Egypt from where we received the card that uh, John's going to read. This is from Bick, and it says, Please, could you play any Beatle record for Dot? Oh, we'd like to do Little Richard's Long Tall Sally. Oh, yes. Now, I believe that some of these shows were going out on uh, on the British shortwave, on, on the military service. So, I mean, you know, I, I could see how someone basically anywhere in Europe might have picked it up. Right. That's really pretty cool. Although it could be the one person in Egypt who had heard of the Beatles. You know, it's not like they were getting, you know, sack loads of mail from Egypt. Well, sure, but <laughs> somebody wrote to them from Egypt. I mean, right. you know. Not saying that's not a, a groovy thing. As if Egypt weren't far enough away, uh, he's also impressed by the fact that they, they get some cards from Germany. Nearly all the requests for the Beatles this week were for their big one from me to you. And here's a request we had from Senelaga in Germany. Germany's not that far. Right, and they're known in Germany. But the BBC has to treat it like this far-off exotic land. Yeah. They recorded Stepping Out on the 21st of May, aired on the 3rd of June, and that's just the hits that got on the radio. Please Please Me and Saw are standing there. They did uh, four other songs, which we don't get because, again, they don't exist. Uh, Roll or Beethoven, Thank You Girl, For Me To You, and Twist and Shout. Right. Then we get the Pop Go The Beatles show. The Beatles have been booked for four shows, no no longer saddled with the Carl Denver trio. <laughs> right. There's a note that the budget for each half-hour show was 100 pounds. Yeah. I'm sure there's really nothing going on except for the recording of the music. I mean, there's not a lot of overhead. But <laughs> yeah, and they had the studio, and they, they had the production people. For the first episode of Pop Go the Beatles, their guest was the Lorne Gibson Trio. They had to have a trio there with them, I guess. <laughs> right. And they had to have a theme song. Since they came up with this name, Pop Go the Beatles. And then they decided we would have to sing Pop Go the Beatles. So it's like, once around the mulberry. Seriously, Pop goes to Go the Beatles. <laughs> and it's like, no, there goes our cred. It, it really doesn't sound that much like Pop Goes the Weasel. The guitar plays the Pop Go the Weasel theme. And now it's five o'clock. Pop! Pop Go the Beatles! It's almost like the Beatles cartoon. It, it is. It's very close. My favorite part of reading about this was that the MC was a man by the name of uh, Lee Peters. And, of course, the Beatles. John being John. Had to change it to P. Leaders. The show starts with their version of Pop Go the Beatles. And, again, they do long versions of it, and they do short versions of it, and they do intermediate versions of it. They would do, eventually, 15 Pop Go the Beatles shows, and they record at least a dozen different versions. One or two of them may be the same from tape, but you know, they're all different. We could put together a whole album of, <laughs> of Pop, Go the, Pop Beatles. Go the Beatles themes. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody has. <laughs> right. So the show starts with the, with the aforementioned Lee Peters. Stand by, away with the earplugs. Lee Peters here saying let's all dig half an hour of the most withered sound of 1963. 
And here are the Beatles with it to the tune of our number one. Okay, boys, you can take it from me to you. <laughs> I don't know what he's... Ref- was the Bond film out yet? No, probably not. So I guess it's the second Bond film. Bond makes the comment, you don't listen to the Beatles without wearing uh, earplugs. Well, the first Bond was in 62, so... It's an interesting comment in light of what the Bond people would do shortly thereafter. Right. My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. So after that intro, intro we get From Me to You, which is incomplete. They, they do some originals. And they do a bunch of their covers, you know, they do everybody's trying to be my baby, which wouldn't be recorded by the Beatles until the end of 64. Then we get into some chat with them. Lee Peters asks them about how, how they come up with their arrangements and like, you just get your guitar, like, and strum it rocking and rolling like Mr. Yeah. Not right, Paul? It's like the clucking, you know, and all that strumming music like George, you let us into the secret, will you? Uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit goon-like. You, you, the picking and the strumming. <laughs> then do you want to know a secret? Something which would actually become a running gag throughout the Pop Go the Beatles show. Hey, George, look, just before you leave, what is this secret? We got the box, Harry. You got the box, Harry. Well, uh, Harry, Harry, I hope you're very happy with the box. Now, before I get boxed in, you're in luck, Leslie and Dot of Seaforth in Liverpool, and so are you, Sue, Eileen, and Anne of Ilkeston in Derbyshire because the boys are going to sing the song that you have requested. It's called, You've Really Got a Hold on Me. Who's Harry? What box are they talking about? Well, we don't know yet, but it's just something to say. Right. Although it is kind of interesting in light of the fact that uh, the protagonist in Broad Street would be named Harry, and the plot such as it is of the film would be Paul running around London looking for a box. Oh my God, that's amazing. Well, I don't know about amazing, but (laughs) there's probably at least some connection in there somewhere. Well, Harry in the box. (laughs) Exactly. Did he have the old gag in his brain when he started writing this thing? Right. Of course, you never know. Paul remembers everything. (laughs) Actually, Paul forgets a lot, but. (laughs) Well, this is true. I've always found that just interesting in that it starts here on the first show and and it does run through a lot of the pop go the Beatles shows Ah. as we will discover when we eventually move into volume three somewhere down the line right that is followed by uh really got a hold on me yeah good song again it's kind of revolutionary for them to be covering a motown song uh at this point right and again, it, they record it here, and they recorded it for with the Beatles pretty soon after this. Uh, th- then another bit of uh, funny business where uh, Lee Peters has to adjust the Beatles into playing position, playing and singing position, and, and they all make creaking noises. Okay, Paul, are you, uh, are you right? Left leg over here, right? That's it. Now, left leg there. Now you detail up a bit. The plaster gets in the way, though. Well, never mind. You won't notice the pain as you sing hippie, hippie shake. (laughs) Now, this was years before yoga and years (laughs) before 
people would talk about cracking their back. It's like ahead of their time, even then. It, it you know it gives you a visual of what was Lee doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't go there. Yeah. The hippie hippie shake, which we've we talked about. Uh, I believe they had played it in the in the first set of shows uh, on disc one. Chan Romero. Yeah, good song. Great version. Maybe a better vocal than the one he did on earlier. This became kind of a, a hit for another band with all the BBC stuff that's out. This is this song is really close in feeling to uh, another song they did called Clarabella. Yeah. Which I like better, actually. Although I really like Paul's vocal. Yeah. Clarabella, John is kind of laughing it off a little bit <laughs> but we'll get to that too so the beatles have their own show at this point they have their own show for four weeks here's the first of the four weeks and what we will discover is well they can't just play the 12 songs off the album you know they're they're gonna be playing five or six songs a week every week or you know every show right and so they close out the show with misery yeah and then the record ends with some interview clips and at the very end, we hear the sign-off from the BBC at the end of the day. Now, in a few moments, the chimes of Big Ben. Midnight and the end of broadcasting in the live program for today, except for the shipping forecast, which follows in a few moments on 1500 meters. So, from me, Angela Buckland, good night, everyone. Good night, sleep well. All this kind of introduces the uh, the Beatles will record for the BBC for another two and a half years you know this is a really important part of their introduction to britain and the education of britain <laughs> because you know the beatles were really introducing a lot of this material that wasn't known uh in britain and the humor i mean it's it's very british humor that they're doing yeah you know i'm still not sure that we necessarily get all of it we'll have to ask jim a little bit more about this sometime well you know the, the culture you know, everybody watching the TV shows and, you know, the goons and, and, and all that. Everybody kind of was tuned into that, or at least a certain age group was tuned into that. So, you know, the Beatles were able to get away with a lot of references and inside humor. And Harry in his box. And Harry. <laughs> Maybe that's what's in the box. Could be. That's disc two. Uh, this is... Uh, a very good listening disc, I think. Despite the repeats, you know, despite the multiple for me to use and the multiple boys, it's one that you can actually sit down and listen to pretty much all the way through. Yeah, it's entertaining. Sure. You know, they're, they're, they're having fun. They are very much into the business of being on the radio. And, you know, even from the interview with Paul from the aughts, you, you can hear he is still excited by, oh, well, you know, every time I pass this building, I have to tell somebody, hey, that's where we did Pop Goes the Beatles. 
<laughs> you know, right there in that building. And we saw him doing some of that uh, with James Corden in Liverpool, but you know, he he has these memories too. Yeah. So you know, you can see just how much it meant to him. So we'll be back next week with a new show. I think about one one of these a month when we're not in the middle of reviewing it sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah, for sure. We still have a few things in the works. So, Yep. And we still don't know when it's coming, but there is a sometime in New York City box coming sometime soon here. And that'll be fun. Really. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that. It, it, it'll be interesting. <laughs> no, no, it, it will be fun. Uh, I, I won't necessarily say that the whole thing will be good listening or something that I will listen to repeatedly, but it will be fun. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, there's some good songs on it, so, you know, that'll be fun. And, and, uh, there's some controversy and, and this is really besides double fantasy. It's, it's the album that, that John and Yoko did. So yeah, for sure. All right, great. So we'll see what happens next week. We'll come up with something for you. Talk to you soon. Tune in. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Mr. Henry was um, a jazz fan and he hated the Beatles. We used to have to sing, um, you know, all kinds of tunes, you know, <laughs> anything. We sang all the old Shirelles and the old Tamla Motown tunes and anything. So consequently, uh, as we were doing loads of those BBC shows, then we'd try and put in, if we had a single or an album that we'd made, we'd, you know, obviously do some of our own stuff. but. A lot of the material was just stuff that we'd be singing around the clubs. Paul's girlfriend was Jane Asher, and she'd finished whatever she would, her job. Um, she'd come around and sit in the control room, and then she'd tell us later what he used to say, because he'd be behind the window and forget that she was there, and he'd be saying, you bloody Beatles, I haven't got a clue, I hate this music, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Hello, Terry. Nice to know you loved, isn't it? I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.